History is all about change. Things change, ideas change, people change. We grow and new ideas replace the old. If, as we look back, the changes led to brilliant advances, the whole world gets to know. But sometimes, sometimes the most interesting stories are the ones that were swept under the rug. Those are the ones that I go in search of. Curiosity, mainly. I like to know where I come from. How my country was built from one generation to the next. One curiosity on top of the next. Today, we're discovering the real stories, how we have come to celebrate our day of Thanksgiving. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. See if this sounds familiar. Once upon a time, people of all ages would dress up in costumes, go to parties, and be rowdy in the streets, and the children would plan out their costumes weeks in advance. Many were homemade, but you could also purchase them from stores. Then, in their costume, they would march in groups around the neighborhood, asking adults for goodies. This sounds like shadows of our Halloween celebrations, right? Not right. The former description is actually that of early Thanksgiving shenanigans. Around 1817 in New York, Thanksgiving masking became the national day of gratitude that our earliest forefathers instituted. George Washington called for a day of Thanksgiving for the first time, issuing a proclamation after the end of the Revolutionary War, and other presidents followed suit by naming a date not necessarily the same date annually, with the exception of Thomas Jefferson, who thought, quote, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, end quote. I'm sure that when they called out for a day to be thankful, it had nothing to do with children dressing up in frightening masks, going door to door, begging for sweets. Anything for Thanksgiving would be heard about the streets in the 1890s, and when they would sing a song or perform a dance or recite a poem, people would toss children candies or coins. In an article from the L.A. Times of 1897, they wrote, quote, Masks of prominent men and the foremost political leaders are made by some manufacturers, and large-sized false hands, feet, noses, ears, etc. are also new and amusing, end quote. Parrots and other birds and animals and ragamuffins were also popular. The ragamuffin trend was so popular in some areas that the holiday was referred to as Ragamuffin Day. Children would dress up in tattered clothes and dirty up their faces and hands like hobos and beg for home-baked goods. Recognizing this as a potential sales boon, candy stores did what they could to help the holiday along by adding costumes and mask displays in their shops to cash in. Appleton's Magazine of 1909 writes, all toy shops carry a line of hideous and terrifying false faces or dough faces. 
and the Los Angeles Times of 1887 reports, Thanksgiving was the busiest time of year for manufacturers of and dealers in masks and false faces. The fantastical costume parades and the old custom of making and dressing up for amusement on Thanksgiving Day keep up from year to year in many parts of the country, so the quantity of false faces sold at this season is enormous. Another form of revelry grew from this, more for the adults, but a group would walk down the main thoroughfare while others lined the streets to watch the costume parade go by with horns, rattles, shouting and singing. The New York Times adds, The throwing of confetti and even flour on pedestrians is an allowable pastime. The festivities grew and got a bit more rambunctious. The largest celebrations culminating in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, Montesano, Washington, and most popular, New York City. As fast as it grew, it soon got out of control. The cities finally got tired of the rowdy celebration. A shift began to happen in the late 1920s and 30s, and it was such a lucrative affair that the merchants did not want to see the holiday quashed. And I'm sure you recognize the similarities we are celebrating today. I know that every Thanksgiving morning I would wake up early to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. How about you? where we see adults and children dress up in costumes and walk down the street singing and dancing and tossing out candy, not so much flour, to the cheering fans along the way. And with the rise of All Saints' Eve, the view was an attempt to curtail the large bonfires, dressing up as Satan, devils, or demons, vandalizing and a uh, small animal sacrifice, trends that were spilling over from our English neighbors. The marketing experts put their spin on it. It became our Halloween. Just creepy enough that the parents could get on board, but civil enough that it wouldn't destroy the towns and most pets would come out alive the next day. The shops promoted it more for children who, not wanting to give up their Thanksgiving masking and going door to door to get candy and coins or home-baked treats, for a song, a rhyme, or doing a card trick, it was an easy solution. Which is, by the way, the children say, trick or treat. Which technically means, give me some candy and I won't destroy your home, basically. But in all fairness, however, when the whole rearranging and morphing of the fall holidays took place, the saying was supposed to be, trick for a treat. Which would allow them to still do their songs or dances, or in my neck of the woods, tell a joke, in exchange for treats. Hello listeners, I'm Katie. And I'm Amber. And we are two hosts on Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. Now, before we move on to this particularly dark chapter in American history, I need to clarify one thing. But if you haven't heard whispers of this before, warning, it's really going to shake you up a bit. That being said, I want you to reflect back to Washington and our earliest presidents. He proclaimed a day of Thanksgiving. It could be a random day at any time of the year, and it was a reminder to pause, be grateful for uh, 
all the things. This tradition was brought over with them from England, and it was common to pause to give thanks for a bountiful harvest, the birth of a child, an optimistic business outcome, or many other things. It didn't become an actual repeatable holiday with a specific meaning until Lincoln. He put the wheels in motion with the help of Sarah Hale, who was an editor for a woman's magazine. She had been working tirelessly for some 15 years to establish the holiday, with everyone she wrote to dismissing her until Lincoln. It was finally locked down with the FDR administration, but more on that a bit later. But now you know. I'll proceed. Day of Thanksgiving. Day. We know that the pilgrims came over on the Mayflower to settle the new lands. If you happen to catch episode 10 of Bag of Bones, it tells a bit more detail about the pilgrims coming on that ship's landing. But in a brief recap, the Mayflower docked and a group of men went to search out a location to start the building of their new settlement. They found an abandoned Indian village, but for whatever reason, they didn't care for it. So they stole some corn, maybe an artifact or two from some of the Indian graves. <clears throat> so next time they went to shore, they found the perfect spot. It too was an abandoned Indian village, but I guess they liked this one better. Plus, they were afraid of going back to the other one, knowing that they stole and desecrated. By the way, they did end up reimbursing the Indians eventually. Anyway, having the land already cleared and the wood cut gave them a head start with winter on their heels in getting the women and children shelter because most were still living on the boat. So when they got there, they were able to move right in. And so they did. All this you probably pretty much know. Except for maybe the stealing part. I don't remember hearing that as a child. So here's where the truth of the story starts coming to the surface. The truth was that back in 1616, only a few years prior to the Mayflower, a vicious pandemic killed the inhabitants, which was varying tribes of the Wampanoag people destroying their villages. So the villages hadn't been evacuated because they moved elsewhere. They were empty because everyone was dead. The Native Americans were killed by an enemy they couldn't see, and it lasted long after the white-skinned people left their lands. Therefore, when the English arrived, they were not welcomed with open arms. They were distrusted. For hundreds of years, the English had been invading, slaving, and slaughtering the indigenous people. Even so, Massasoit, whose very name means great leader, opted to help the weak and starving pilgrims. They held back and watched for a time, weighing out their strategies, and it wasn't until February that they made contact with an English-speaking ally named Samoset. He made it clear that there could be peace or the warriors could kill them all. The Indians were fine either way. Luckily, for all the generations to come, an understanding was to come to pass an alliance of sorts that the Wampanoag would help them if they could assure the Indians that the settlement was intended to stay small and that the settlers would help protect them against their enemies. And lo, the pilgrims were protected and assisted by the Wampanoag. But when it came time for the feasting and celebrating of the Union and the harvest, the Indians' invitation got lost in the mail. 
Massasoit and about a hundred of his people showed up anyway, and there was a breaking of bread, sharing of plunder, and toasts to the fortuitous tomorrows. In a letter signed E.W., which was Edward Winslow, that was sent to a friend in England, he writes, quote, And God be praised, we had a good increase, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together. The letter continues, These things I thought good to let you understand, that you might on our behalf give God thanks who hath dealt so favorably with us. End quote. In 1622, without his approval, Winslow's letter was printed into a pamphlet and shared. This pamphlet, which is referred to as Mort's Relation, is where we get our first references of the first Thanksgiving, the meal, and the attendance. However, that day, that day of Thanksgiving, the one that has been immortalized on canvas and ink and construction paper hats, that's where the fellowship ended. As soon as November of 1621, their three-day feast had barely digested, a new ship arrived bringing 37 new settlers, but without many supplies throwing the colony into a strain to provide for everyone going into winter. In 1622, after two years of assistance from the Wampanoag, three ships arrived carrying over 60 men, and then in 1623, Two more ships brought 96 new settlers, and some of these decided to spread out and begin a new settlement elsewhere. There goes the neighborhood. Trivia. The second ship, in 1621, carried a settler by the name of Philip de Lano. The name transformed into Delano, and descendants can be traced all the way back up to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt who, as we mentioned, was the very first president that put Thanksgiving on the holiday map. After a few skirmishes between the expanding number of English and the Native Americans, mostly over trade and land settlement, a nasty little massacre in 1637 known as the Pequot Massacre, where the pilgrims annihilated some 700 women, children, and elders when they raided their fort, shot, stabbed, and the fort was set on fire, some being burned alive. The men of a second fort were taken as slaves or killed, leaving less than 20 hearts still beating. The governor at the time, William Bradford, documented the massacre in his writings, History of Plymouth, by stating, quote, It was a fearful sight to see them frying in the fryer, and the streams of blood quenching the same, and horrible was the stink and scent. He continues, but the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave the prayers thereof to God who had wrought so wonderfully for them, thus to enclose their enemies in their hands and give them so speedy a victory over so proud and insulting an enemy. And the next day he designated a day of thanksgiving, thus our second reference to the history of our holiday. But wait, hold on to your pumpkin pie. Before the Plymouth Colony was merged with the larger Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1691, the pact they had made on their first day of Thanksgiving a mere decade ago was all but a memory. More and more settlers came and took over Indian lands. Disease that came with them wiped out a huge percentage of the people, 
and others, like surviving members of the Pequot massacre, were taken as slaves, and with the burning and ravaging of the villages and settlements, many Native Americans starved. In three years, the Native American population diminished by 80%. The wars and skirmishes continued and then escalated. Kidnapping, murder, raids, disease. By 1675, the colonists and the Wampanoag were embroiled in a war called King Philip's War. This is considered the bloodiest war in history. Over 9,000 people were killed, which equaled over 10% of the entire population. English and Native American alike. King Philip, his Wampanoag name was Metacombe, was actually the son of Mesozoic, and his legacy was to fight to keep their lands to save their families. In the meantime, the colonists wanted to keep their land, but also move further west, and they just wanted the Indians to be out of their way. The war finally came to an end with the Indian tribes acknowledging that they were now outnumbered and didn't have the same resources for warfare. King Philip was hunted down in a swamp and shot. The son of the man who introduced the new white settlers to the land, helped sustain them through the harsh winters, was beheaded and quartered, and his head was mounted on a pike for 25 years just outside the Plymouth colony as a warning for the other tribe. Thus, wiping out the Indians basically allowed European settlers to expand and continue to move west with little to no opposition. David J. Silverman, author of the book This Land is Their Land, writes, As Americans looked for an origin story that wasn't soaked in the blood of Native Americans or built on the backs of slavery, the humble, bloodless story of the 102 pilgrims foraging a path in the New World in search of religious freedom was just what they needed. Regardless of whether it was rooted in historical fact, it became accepted as such. End quote. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougere. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar 
and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. If the stories thus far haven't soured your taste for cranberry salad, this just might. Brace yourself. Turkey wasn't mentioned as being on the first Thanksgiving menu. In fact, turkey was a common meat, so it might have just been assumed, so no need to write it down. It was one of the first domesticated animals because they're not very bright, they're not too hard to catch since they can't fly away, and they're just so darn yummy. But not to mention, it could feed a lot of people, as long as they didn't all want just the white meat. They did celebrate with the harvests of the time, which at this time of year would have been pumpkins, squash, rutabaga, and yes, cranberries, and they would have, as Mr. E. Winslow mentioned, fowl, meaning goose and duck, and maybe even turkey. That published description of the first Thanksgiving in Mort's relation that was mentioned earlier was lost for a time. It was rediscovered in Philadelphia around 1820. Reverend Alexander Young included the entire text in his Chronicles of the Pilgrim Farmers from 1841. In the footnotes that accompanied Winslow's letter, Young writes, This was the first Thanksgiving, the Harvest Festival of New England. On this occasion they no doubt feasted on wild turkeys as well as venison. And if you're feeling guilty about celebrating the holiday that was based on lies, it really wasn't. We can blame the advertisers for that blunder. Silverman adds that, quote, The myth is that friendly Indians, unidentified by tribe, welcome the pilgrims to America, teach them how to live in this new place, sit down to dinner with them, and then disappear. They hand off America to the white people so they can create a great nation dedicated to liberty, opportunity, and Christianity for the rest of the world to profit. That's the story. It's about Native American people conceding to colonialism. It's bloodless and in many ways an extension of the ideology of Manifest Destiny. End quote. Advertisers needed an iconic image to link, thus the black clothing and the shiny brass buckles on their shoes. You get the idea. The day of Thanksgiving of 1621, or even of 1637, or even Washington's day of Thanksgiving in 1789, was just a day, not what our holidays are truly based on. In the proclamation that Lincoln issued in October 1863, made no mention of pilgrims or Indians, turkey or pumpkin pie. His idea on this annual day of Thanksgiving was one of being thankful. The country was in the midst of the Civil War, and morale was low. At the urging of Sarah Hale, who, for all of my trivia fans out there, was also the creator of the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, to make it have, quote, national recognition and authoritative fixation to become permanently an American custom and institution, end quote, in October of 1863, Lincoln did just that. It reads in part, following a long list of things we have to be thankful for in the midst of ongoing war, quote, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea, 
those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as it may be consistent with the divine purposes to fulfill enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union, to heal the wounds of a nation. And then, in November of 1941, only weeks before the bombing at Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs Proclamation 2522, the Thanksgiving Day Proclamation. He states in part, quote, we have not lost our faith in the spiritual dignity of man, our proud belief in the right of all people to live out their lives in freedom and with equal treatment. The love of democracy still burns brightly in our hearts. On the day appointed for this purpose, let us reflect at our homes or places of worship on the goodness of God, and in giving thanks, let us pray for a speedy end to strife and the establishment on earth of freedom, brotherhood, and justice for the enduring time. End quote. No Indians, no turkey, no green bean casserole, which was also not on the menu for the days of the Thanksgiving that we talked about. That didn't become a thing until 1955 when Campbell's Soup Marketing Department made it a must have for every holiday gathering. Just saying. There is, as of the mid-1970s, an Un-Thanksgiving Day, also known as the Indigenous People's Sunshine Ceremony and the National Day of Mourning, celebrated on Alcatraz Island and at Plymouth, Massachusetts, respectively. It was created by the International Indian Treaty Council to commemorate the struggles of the Native Americans and as a platform to adjust the skew of American history. It allows the people the opportunity to share their heritage, honor their loved ones, inspire tradition, and pass on their side of the story. We cannot rewrite history. Today, I like to think that Thanksgiving is about stopping, taking pause from our busy lives and making time for those who matter to us. Food brings us together. So if it's turkey or shellfish, potatoes or squash, whether you honor the Lincoln Proclamation or FDRs or the Day of Mourning, let it be a day of Thanksgiving. Enjoy your holiday, my new bag of bones family, and save me a piece of pumpkin pie. Thank you for embracing this podcast. If you loved it, please invite others to listen and don't forget to leave a review or a five-star rating. I'll be back next week with another episode. If you have a suggestion for an episode, I would love to hear about it. Please reach out by visiting my website at elizabethbougeret.com. Bag of Bones is researched and recorded by Elizabeth Bougeret 
Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.